Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And today, if you are a very religious person, turn this off now! If you're a little bit religious, turn this off now! Wait, are we... Are we is this like the Ricky Gervais podcast? <laughs> are we going to blaspheme? Oh, oh uh, virgin birth, oxymoron much, ooh, ooh, talking snake, oh, I'd, have to, I'd be pretty gullible to believe that, eh? I'm glad that we could bring some uh, <laughs> some hot Ricky Gervais content. Oh, so, so, ten commandments, these are, these are the ten commandments you choose, oh, why, oh, oh, oh. I'm just going to let you go through your whole Ricky Gervais bit. <laughs> now, today we're talking about Jesus on film, and this was an idea I had just because... The character of Jesus is so universal. And there's been a million movies made about him. And I wanted to explore around Easter time. Yeah, he's like the original Batman. Yeah, that's right. Solving crimes, uh, beating people up, how he's portrayed in film. Also, because I've always had a weird fascination with biblical epics. These big, massive, mega productions that are usually super dull. But, like, people had to watch these. And by people... I mean, people in a church group and in Christian schools that the teacher puts it on to take up three hours. I mean, these were the Marvel movies of their day. Mm. These were, you know, the family that goes to the movies once a year at Christmas time goes to see the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. And then it's on TV every year forever after that. This never really had much of a place in my life when I was a kid because my mom never showed me movies, but we were... You know, I would say above average uh, religious Christian household. Oh, I thought you were a Scientologist. Nope. 100% Christian when I was a teenager. Okay. <laughs> because were like... Were church going? Yes, I was. Mm -hmm. uh, for a while, it was every Sunday. And I would go to like, you know, when you were a little kid, you go to the back room with the other kids mm -hmm. to do like um, Sunday school. And then by the time, time you turned 23, it was time Yeah, time to, to leave. <laughs> yeah. No, eventually it just kind of like petered off, but... Through most of my childhood, um, you know, Sunday was church time. How about you? Yeah, I, I grew up going to church on Sunday. Did you do your prayers every night like a good uh, Christian child? When I was a little kid, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. I did. I did the Our Father, mm -hmm. you know. And a Hail Mary. Yeah. Uh, and eventually, you know, I think both of us are pretty much in the same position. It petered off and you are racked with guilt. Me, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> because in my life, as it would go along, I would hear, especially Jesus, um, referenced mostly as someone that would be prayed to to uh, get good grades or a job. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point as a teenager, you realize, well, this figurehead doesn't really mean anything, mm -hmm. I guess, worthwhile if this is how we're going to use them. I will say that, you know, reading the Gospels... Recently? No, uh, when I was in high school, it, mm. it, it didn't feel like a lot to hang a religion on. No. Uh, I was never mm. a Old Testament guy. It was always New Testament in my house. Like, mm. I had my illustrated Bible that covered Genesis and stuff like that. But as far as like sitting down, oh man, I'm just having flashbacks of having the Bible I had to carry around all the time when I was in school. <laughs> it was all New Testament stuff mm -hmm. and that we never really talked about Old Testament because Old Testament is filled with violence and bad stuff and God being a destructive force. It was all about Jesus. But Jesus is an interesting topic for us because, you know, in film and in life, Jesus means so many different things to so many different people. Mm -hmm. I mean, you'd think that was that you'd think that shouldn't be the case. His words are fucking there. Yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> but everyone is very certain about their interpretation. So Jesus may mean one thing to Mel Gibson, may mean another to Pier Paolo Pasolini, mm-hmm. may mean another to fucking George Stevens. When know. I was a kid, there was a Christa Berg song about Jesus, and I remember playing it for another kid that was even more religious than I was. And he was infuriated because the song described Jesus as a poor boy. And he was like, well, Jesus was never a poor boy. He was the son of Christ. He was this holy figure. Wow. And I remember he just kind of like ran incensed out of my home. And that's usually how the movies treat him. So like we can start with George Stevens, the greatest story ever told. Because when you're talking about Jesus blockbusters, they don't get much bigger than this one. Not from 1965. It's over three hours long, and it's got a stacked cast. Max von Sydow as Christ, Claude Rains as um, Herod, Sidney Poitier's in there, John Wayne's in there as a centurion. All our favorites. And as you mentioned, John Wayne as a centurion kind of defines what these actors do in this film, which is just kind of show up, say a line. People in the audience can be like, ooh, wow, look, it's this person and then not doing anything else even though john wayne as you posted on uh, social media got his own poster <laughs> looking up into the sky well there's a famous possibly apocryphal story around this movie where george stevens filmed the take john wayne says surely this man is the son of god and then he goes over and says uh could you try saying it with a little more awe and then he filmed another take and he goes Oh, surely this man is the son of God. (laughs) You know what? I would believe it. (laughs) Now, we've never talked about George Stevens on this show, and we're going to try to not make this about the filmmaker too much when we talk about these movies, because we'll probably get to them um, later on. Mm -hmm. But George Stevens was known as a kind of like heavy director. The Kubrick of his time, he would do like 20, 50 takes to get the right performance. He wanted it perfect. And I mean, the, he's certainly no Kubrick when it comes to the quality of his work, if you ask me. And the greatest story ever told is a plotting bore. Oh, my God. I mean, it feels like it's playing in slow motion. <laughs> 100%. You know, it's from cradle to grave. All the hit moments from Christ's life come out and they're played like they're the hit moments. Uh, oh, Charlton Heston is John the Baptist. Oh, how could I forget Charlton <laughs> Heston? He's the best in like a furry Flintstones-like um, costume and a big old beard. He's the only person in this movie, aside from maybe Donald Pleasance, whose performance I enjoyed. Oh man, I kind of like stood up a little bit when uh, Charlton Heston showed up on screen because yeah. he's just chilling the scenery the entire time. But you know, Jesus may as well be stuffed and mounted in this Mm -hmm. when we're talking about portrayals of jesus this is the benevolent boring jesus he's not a character he's just a figure he you know he says what he says in a very calm and monotone style that will put anybody listening to him right to sleep and there's always heavy music underneath and the way he says that in the music and everything it's as if to say Remember this? This is the famous line. This is the famous line. And uh, it, it's it's absolutely bloodless. I mean, there's there's some worth in the movie because, you know, it's shot in Super Panavision or whatever. And so it has these vast, wide vistas. Shot in America. 
Really? All of it was shot in America. Yeah. Monument Valley? Uh-huh. Or, yeah. And because George Stevens says, you know, the countries where it actually took place don't have the vision that I want. Nothing is as mythical as, you know, real America. Yeah, because we're not talking about the historical Jesus here. It's simply Jesus as an icon. Like, you know, typical is the Last Supper scene, mm-hmm. right? Where Jesus is sitting at the, at, at the, uh, in the middle of the table. Let's recreate the painting. The camera pulls out, and of course, all the apostles are in their place, just like the painting. Um, and yeah, there's there's just no juice there. Is there a place though for drama and compassion and involvement in a religious text like this, or should it just be presented bare the way that you know most people would say that it has to be to reflect its original source? Well, every time there's a Jesus movie that has an idea or, or multiple ideas because the greatest story ever told has no idea. It's not, it doesn't have any point of view on Jesus except look at how, look at how big this guy is. Look at how monumental everything he did was. It's not like no one's going to watch this movie and go, Oh, I understand what Jesus is about. And you've won me over. It's, you know, we're going to talk about this a lot as we go along. It's for people who already believe with every ounce of their being and they're going to enjoy it. For that reason. Yeah, but, you know, I think the better Jesus movies have some point of view on Jesus, but once you start getting into a point of view on him, once you have something to say that is your own, then it's controversial and then you're alienating a huge part of your audience. Mm-hmm. So the only way to do it is to make it as milk toast as possible mm-hmm. or to wrap it around like Passion of the Christ style, like action movie stuff. And that Jesus, you know, he can still crack jokes. He invented the table, as he says in the movie. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about the Passion of the Christ. Mm-hmm. Because well, that, the other extreme. The, yeah, because while I don't like it, I do think it is better than the greatest story ever told. I agree. Because it has a point of view. Yeah, it's more entertaining, first of all. <laughs> which is its problem. <laughs> but it does have a point of view, which is all about all that Gibson wants to communicate with this movie is Jesus Christ suffered. And he suffered and he suffered and he suffered. And, and think about that suffering for a while. But at the same time, I don't want to be offensive with the suffering. Like, it's violent, but it's still palatable to an audience if this was directed for example by the director of i don't know cannibal holocaust maybe it would be tougher for a viewer to watch Hmm. and you would be repelled by it and i think that like it's such a fine line that gibson walks where it's super violent and there's like an 18 minute whipping scene but it presents it in a way that the audience never gets bored or they never get numb to what's going on and I, I mean this in a negative way, because, like, the way that he's whipped and the angles and the slow motion, it's entertaining in a way that I, I don't think passion plays are meant to be. Mm. Because, like, I mean, I've never seen a passion play. Have you, like, put on in a church? I, I've seen uh, one or two, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to represent Jesus' suffering that he went through for mankind. Uh-huh. And it's supposed to be miserable, and it's supposed to be like, oh my god, is this over? To get that across to an audience. The Passion of the Christ ends in a way where the audience is like, yeah! Jesus is gonna go kick butt now! Music swells. I think the light is coming through the hole in his hand. I mean, it's certainly, I think, the most violent movie that a lot of people have seen. Yes. And they were fine with it. Well, it really fetishizes the violence. Mm-hmm. It, it lingers lovingly over a lot of it. I mean, it's 
I don't quite know how to make a movie that's about suffering and not fall into the... I mean, so Gibson is such a weird filmmaker Mm -hmm. uh, because I guess he wants you to be repelled by the violence, but he loves the violence too much. Mm -hmm. Isn't that strange? (laughs) It is strange. And the fact that he's able to walk that line and like get people to swallow it and to make it feel like it feels radical, but not too radical. Like it's not breaking out of conventions that we know when it comes to like big budget movies. Like I think on some intellectual level, Gibson would tell you that the violence is supposed to be horrible, but he, as as a man, he as, loves it. as a filmmaker, thinks that violence, that through the, the suffering is what makes him great. And therefore the suffering has to be great. And so he, he loves it. Like I watched a documentary on this film and Gibson and everybody involved are so like proud of bringing this vision to screen, pulling this magic trick off. Like the fact that it's all prosthetics that they used, even when like Jesus gets his hand nailed in, it's not a CGI nail. They shot a real hand and they comped it in, which is something they rarely do because it's a little bit more work than just doing it with computer generated imagery. Or the fact that it's all shot in a dead language. Like it's all this stuff that Gibson kind of like drapes the movie in for it to have more value to him well, I to mean, make it feel important. Yeah, I think this movie is really stupid in the sense that like Gibson has these pretensions that, oh, I'm showing you how it really was. All those other biblical epics gloss over the suffering, but I'm giving you this documentary like, like it's so real we're even having him speak in Aramaic. It's not real it's not though. not real at all. Like that scene where he's being whipped and the Romans pull out the spiky whips and they're pulling muscle out and of the like, And it's like slow motion as it comes out. And he like Jesus is on the ground looking like an action hero and he like he like stands up mm-hmm. triumphantly. I I mean that's dumb action movie Mel Gibson bullshit. And that's something you do have a problem with though to portray Jesus that way. Uh, you can portray Jesus I guess however you want to portray him, but there's there's an internal inconsistency. In yeah, the that's what I was Christ. trying to get out of you. Yeah, is yeah. the fact <laughs> that like what's being presented and what they're saying they're presenting is not what people are actually consuming. Also, I love that the devil is this androgynous character in the movie because, mm. of course, you know, Mel Gibson wants to think about what's something that is really horrific and evil. I don't know if it's a man or a woman. Ugh, there what you a go. terrible person. Yeah. And, I mean, it's strange to me that this is the movie he would want to make about Jesus of all the of all the things. It's strange can... to you or you're like, oh, yes, this makes sense. Well, it makes sense that it's the one he wants to make, mm-hmm. but I also feel bad for him that the this is the movie he wants to make about Jesus. Because it's a reflection of his personality. I mean, you know, you could make... Do you feel movie... bad for him as he sits on his giant pile of money that he made on Passion of the Christ? Well, he's not happy. No, he's definitely not happy, <laughs> but he's very rich. Yeah. Uh, you know, speaking of films that like portray suffering, like, what about 120 Days of Sodom? That's a movie about the logical extension of fascism slash capitalism. But, like, looking at those images and the way that Pasolini just lingers on them, it's not entertaining in the way that Gibson is doing it in The Passion of the Christ. Yeah, I, it's certainly not in the exact same way, although I do think that, like, Pasolini also kind of likes it. Oh, he does, definitely. Like, he's like, he likes it in the same way that, like, the Marquis de Sade kind of likes mm-hmm. it, you know? And, uh, you know, I'm just teeing you up here so we can talk about the Pasolini film that also has Jesus in it. <laughs> One more thing, we were talking about Mel Gibson the other day, mm. and, you know, you, you said something about how Mel Gibson would be interesting if you were like this 70s grindhouse auteur. Yeah, I did say that. And, you know, I was I, I was thinking about The Passion of the Christ. It's like, 
you know, you said Michael Findley or, mm. or, you know, I, I thought about like Phil Prince or someone like that. If he was like a gutter tour, mm-hmm. you know, just this madman who was making these crazy movies, I'd probably like him more. Or even like William Lustig when he was making Maniac and he hadn't done anything pa- past yeah. that point. You'd be like, who is this person? <laughs> They're like sick in the head. But yeah. because of where Mel Gibson is when he made Passion of the Christ <laughs> and who he is, it's different than if he had done it in the 70s. It was interesting when Passion of the Christ came out, though, because he was this he was one of the biggest movies stars and he was also like this affable guy who would mm-hmm. go on talk shows um and then all of a sudden it was like oh he's a really weird sick guy and he's like <laughs> anti-semitic and how could we have ever known there's no evidence in passion of the christ at all he, not the uh yeah. evil jewish people in the film i mean then we found out his dad was a holocaust denier mm-hmm. and, and you know he is too frankly if yep. you read anything he says about it <laughs> yep um but he's a crack up on set he wears a little red nose yeah yeah do you think that pasolini when he made the gospel according to matthew was like joking around on set all the time probably probably keeping he's, it fresh like a fun guy so yeah gospel according to saint matthew which is another extreme mm-hmm. portrayal of jesus where he shot it in this uh neorealist style all non-professional actors black and white but very, he used only the dialogue from the new testament from he, the book of matthew he didn't yeah specifically from the book of matthew mm-hmm. he didn't like embellish any of the dialogue he didn't create his own stories like a lot of movies tend to do he just wanted to give it raw and at the same time giving it that Pasolini touch because out of all the Jesus movies that we're talking about today Jesus is never more kind of reactionary than he is here well he's a very political figure Mm -hmm. in this one and Pasolini as we know uh, a Marxist atheist his vision of jesus is as like a rabble-rousing marxist Mm -hmm. and and an angry guy like a a real revolutionary there's this uh one sequence where the camera is just on a head and shoulders of jesus and he's just saying the stuff that he says in the bible but the way it's delivered and the way it's shot and the way it's cut takes a whole different context in the way you're usually used to hearing it in church yeah because you're used to seeing Jesus, you know, like Max von Sydow or, you know, Ted Neely in Jesus Christ Superstar. Mm-hmm. Very, you know, uh, kindly, milquetoast guys. But yeah, this guy is angry. This guy's a rabble rouser. He's young. He's charismatic. Mm-hmm. And he says... Um, Probably wasn't that young, actually. He was 33, which is like <laughs> yeah. life expectancy back then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, he goes around just riling everybody up. Rousing the dregs of society. You mm-hmm. know? He's a working class revolutionary. And he knows what's going happen too like he knows that you know he's going to be uh crucified and that he's gonna return and he's kind of okay with it with that kind of steely determination that the actor brings to the role you know it's interesting the the scene where there's the marketplace at the temple um in most of the movies jesus is this very sweet tempered guy who you know suddenly flips out uh you want to get nuts let's get nuts (laughs) (laughs) when he sees the market and it's the one time his his temper really rises whereas in pasolini's movie it's like an escalation to that scene it's like he gets more and more influential and powerful until finally um, he feels confident enough that he can go to this market and start flipping over tables. It doesn't even feel like a like giant outburst. It just feels like an extension of his persona that we've been seeing through this film. Like when he does it, he's not like, ah! He just walks, like, just flipping the tables. And it's something that he knows he's going to do when he gets there and that he then just executes. And this is where, you know, the Romans and the high priest start saying, okay, this is getting out of hand. Mm-hmm. We got to stop this guy. It was fine when he was just, you know, 
holding some meetings with fishermen, but now he's actually a bit of a threat, and so we've got to snuff this guy out. Like, it's kind of a, it's a very Marxist movie. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I, I like uh, Pasolini's movie a lot, because it's also, you know, the the least sentimental of them all. I was you know? surprised that, I don't know why I got this in my head, that it was going to be even, like, rougher than it actually was. Mm. Because, like, the film, it's definitely stylistically different than anything we've talked to about now, but it's also pretty reverential in the way that it shows shows Jesus. It's visually beautiful, I think. In it its is. Way, yeah. And, and more in a more authentic way than the greatest story ever told is. And it kind of ramps up its um, anarchic visual style as it goes along there, where the beginning is usually calm and wide, close-ups. And as it goes along, you start getting like, like that sequence, all the cuts to Jesus, or it'll be more handheld following him as he's going along. Well, there's that strange scene towards the end where he's being tried, and it's all shot from this long shot as if the camera, as if it's like a newsreel crew that's <laughs> capturing it like through a fence or something yeah and that's like that's what i really like about the movie and it was actually like i said taken aback at the beginning that it wasn't like that i know it was a bit controversial in its day just because everyone looked very poor and dirty in it yes which is how people looked <laughs> by the way broken teeth <laughs> there uh, was actually a colorized and dubbed version of this no movie released in, wow like, i did not know that years ago yeah so if you want to i mean 10 years ago yeah like that wow yeah. I didn't, that recently so i mean I, I don't know who would watch that i think if you want that kind of church movie, groups there are plenty of jesus movies if that's what you want <laughs> yeah i mean like the idea of like dirtiness and just terribleness takes us again to what we talked about last week monty python and life of brian which is the jesus movie that jesus is barely in but that sequence where he's talking on the mount and all the characters are so far away they can't hear him speak up yeah very funny <laughs> what, what does he say um blessed are the cheese makers <laughs> oh the cheese makers oh it's just a metaphor he's speaking more generally about all dairy workers <laughs> Life of Brian, very funny movie. You revisited it this week. I did, yeah. How, how did you feel about it? Uh, not as funny as the Holy Grail. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, though. When it talks about religion and starts kind of, like, deconstructing it, that's when it's really funny. The whole segment from Brian, like being on a street corner to getting a whole bunch of followers and how that like escalates. That's the funniest part of the whole movie. Oh, I, yeah, it is funny. And when he, when he leaves behind the sandal and the gourd. <laughs> yeah. And then like they break up groups like, Oh no, we, um, we want to pray to the gourd. No, we pray to the sandal. It's a funny movie. I don't like it as much as whole, quite as much as Holy Grail mm-hmm. because uh, I don't think a plot is really their strength, right? No, and this is one that you do feel the moments between jokes in a way that you never do with uh, um, Holy Grail. There is, there's some, you know, coherence in the movie where it has kind of a two-pronged attack both on politics and religion because uh, it's also going after, like, dogmatic political groups and while it's going after dogmatic religious groups and saying it, it comes down on this kind of, like, individualist message of you've got to think for yourself Mm -hmm. as brian says (laughs) (laughs) but you also got to look on the bright side of life also government should not be involved and everybody should be a libertarian (laughs) that's the underlining message of life of brian jesus is in the movie though at the at the very beginning in the manger and on the sermon on the mount and I think they just put that in there to, like, cover their asses so that they can <laughs> yeah, say, oh, no, Jesus is in it. Mm-hmm. We're actually quite reverential towards Jesus. Yeah, we're, we're not, uh, we don't want to offend anybody who is very religious, and they still got offended. Well, I mean, the movie is, so, it's such a disingenuous thing, because the movie is like being there. What it's saying is, mm. what if Jesus was just, was just a guy who got misinterpreted? I just remembered that there's an entire movie made for TV 
about the Monty Python's reaction to when this movie was released. Do you remember that? Yeah, Holy Flying Circus it was called. I saw it. It's it's fucking awful. Hey, great Michael Palin impersonator. Yeah, yeah, well, and, you know, the Cleese is okay, too. Like, all the, all the guys are do good impersonations. But it's but. a movie where you're like, where's the story here? <laughs> yeah, because it's all building up to that debate they had on TV. Mm-hmm. And who cares? Yeah, I, I don't. And also, it's, it's one of those movies that, like, has Python-esque Ugh, mo- yeah. moments in it, which never... Forced. Yeah, terrible. So I actually watched tons of Jesus movies this week, trying to crack the code. <laughs> like the last time I tried to do a movie about a very important man, Ron Howard. <laughs> <laughs> trying to f- get a little faith back into your life, right? Yeah. I mean, I watched, uh, uh, of course, I got to watch a DeMille epic. I watched Sign of the Cross, which is not really a Jesus movie, but is about like religious people and how they are affected by the death of Jesus. And it's really funny because it's DeMille going like, oh, I'm making this reverential film about religion. But at the same time, here's an alligator eating a woman and a gorilla going up to a woman and probably to do horrible stuff to her. It's that like pre-code, ah, aren't you enjoying all this stuff? Even though, no, this is very important. Just want you to remember that. Uh, I also watched The Passover Plot from 1976, another big controversial film where Zalman King, the man behind the Red Shoe Diaries, (laughs) plays Jesus as... I was under the assumption that he was kind of like a con man because like The Passover Plot is to fool people into thinking that he's going to come back to life. Mm-hmm. But nah, it's just a TV movie where just very benevolent Jesus who the the idea of him coming back is just a way to further their message. It isn't as like out there as I was hoping that it was going to be. And I think probably the biblical epic that I liked the most was Barabbas, mm-hmm. the story of the thief that was let go uh, instead of Jesus when Jesus was crucified, played by Anthony Quinn in all his sulking, like, mean-looking glory. It's an amazing biblical epic that's massive in a way that movies just aren't anymore. That's also super violent and never really clarifies what's going on with Barabbas. Like, he seems, as the movie goes along, to be a good guy, but he's still kind of a bad guy. And when he does finally, like, accept religion, he does it in the wrong way. And he's brutally crucified at the end. It's a film that's also, like, violent and gross. And death can come at any time. <laughs> in the same way that, like, Richard Fleischer, he was mostly known as a journeyman director. But, like, Mandingo is, like, the anti-Gone with the Wind. I love Mandingo. <laughs> which is dealing with the same material in, like, oh, this is how it probably really would. It's, like, gross and gruesome. And there's no romanticism there. And that's kind of the way Barabbas is. And it's great. And it's very difficult to see at this point in time. Well, I watched or I revisited Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus Christ Superstar. I think it's, uh, you know, a little silly, mm-hmm. uh, but it's great got, music. It's fun, too. It's got some good songs. It's got some less good songs. Norman Jewison <laughs> is uh, firing at all cylinders. But I mean, the the star of the show is um, the guy whose name I'm forgetting, who plays Judas, mm-hmm. who's very charismatic. Also, yeah. the porn star, Paul Thomas, who plays <laughs> the Apostle Peter. The only reason you wanted to bring this movie up. Wait, what movie <laughs> was Paul Thomas in? Oh, he was in hundreds of movies. I, cu- I couldn't name one. Yeah. You probably haven't even seen one, have you? Uh, oh, I've seen hundreds of movies. Uh, I- I've seen Paul Thomas <laughs> okay. in-, in movies. <laughs> All of Paul Thomas. But there's still big budget Jesus movies that are made as well. Like, I watch Risen by Kevin Reynolds, the director of Waterworld, mm. which you may recall is the uh, film that stars Joseph uh, Fiennes, 
from Shakespeare in Love Mm -hmm. as the Roman who's tasked with finding out what happened to Jesus when he came back to life. Mm. Uh, At first, I was a little bit excited about this movie. It has like a cheap jack gladiator style to it. It starts with a big action scene. Kevin Reynolds is a very pulpy director. But yeah, it just ended with Benevolent Jesus at the end. Uh, surprisingly, in this one, not played by a white guy. Played by Cliff Curtis, a New Zealand actor. Wow. Which is not something you usually see in any Jesus movie. Mm. Even though that is uh, historically correct. He would have not been white. One movie that we didn't revisit, but I'm sure that we both like, is The Last Temptation of Christ. I love Last Temptation yeah. of Christ. And it's interesting because it's about the idea of Jesus as a man mm-hmm. like, finding himself. And, and the that... struggle that he had to go through. It's another extreme. It's mm-hmm. very far away from the greatest story ever told it's jesus is a flesh and blood guy a a man with flaws yeah which is the way that like if you look at the new testament that's why you know jesus and the money lenders is supposed to show him with flaws Uh just the concept of him getting headaches when god is trying to communicate with him is such a potent a way to interpret the Bible. How do you like the decision to have all the characters talking in modern accents? I'm fine. Yeah. As opposed to them doing accents. Yeah. Like that I've... Harvey Keitel doing the, yeah, the full Brooklyn. I have never been a person that likes it when, you know, you make a World War II movie and all the Germans have German accents or they're just, you know, the general Britishness. Yeah. The kind of ease. No, everybody should just be doing their own voice. Like... Or they're doing it in the original language. No accents, please. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, Harvey Cartel is funny because he's talking in his normal uh, and, New York accent. And he's got a funny, like, uh, orange wig. <laughs> yes, he does have a funny <laughs> orange wig. I mean, but that's a movie, like, that's kind of amazing because Scorsese had so much less than he wanted. So it's almost a Poverty Row-esque mm-hmm. film that he had to kind of, like, just tear it out because it's a story that he needed to tell. Yeah, it feels very alive, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Which is... What Jesus movies never feel alive. They just feel kind of like entombed, like Jesus himself before he rose. And that sucks. And that if, you know, filmmakers want to tackle these stories, give it a little bit of life. Like what? I mean, the worst that can happen is that, you know, you get death threats and uh, somebody will blow up your house. Yeah, you can't do anything because, you know, you'll be like Kevin Smith's and Dogma and people will be protesting in front of uh, the screening of the movie. Well, it's funny you should mention that because on our Patreon this week, we discussed kevin smith's reverential satire dogma we said we'd never talk about kevin smith again we lied (laughs) i'm sure we'll talk about him a few more times yeah probably he's an endless fountain of uh but dogma uh, is uh kevin smith's biggest movie his religious epic and we talk about it on our patreon which you can listen to for five dollars a month you get a new episode every week and you get our whole back catalog which is more than 100 episodes at this Mm -hmm. point Uh, you can become a subscriber by going to patreon.com slash the important cinema club do we have any letters this week we do. And as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And the letter is from Scotty Gilmer, and he goes, Hello, hosts. I've recently been enjoying the bio miniseries Fosse Verdon on FX, and it got me thinking, not just about the movies Bob Fosse made, but the movies he didn't. In a world where he didn't die as early, we would have gotten a proper screen adaptation of Chicago that starred people who could actually dance and sing, all due respect to Queen Latifah. This, along with the recent releases of The Other Side of the Wind and The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, and Coppola allegedly moving forward on Megalopolis for the hundredth time, has got me thinking about unmade and long-delayed movies. Personally, I love thinking about Powell and Press. Burgers, The Tempest, and Dally the Marx Brothers' Giraffe on Horseback Salad, or the parallel world where Scorsese did Schindler's List and Spielberg did Cape Fear before they allegedly traded projects. I'm assuming you're both big fans of Tim Burton and Kevin Smith's Superman Lives, but besides that, do you have any favorite movies never made? 
Also, I'd like to encourage any of your listeners who haven't yet subscribed to receive the Important Cinema Club newsletter. I'm a big collector of zines and a small press creator of comics and books myself, and I'm very happy to have yours in my collection. Your essays, analysis, and curation of recommended titles are as worthwhile as anything you say on the show, and it's a welcome break from bullshit takes on film Twitter. So listeners, run, don't walk to your Important Cinema Club Patreon and get yourself subscribed. Best Scotty. And you can do that, patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club, and it's $10 a month to get the Important Cinema Club newsletter, which is not a newsletter, it's just a collection of essays and best of lists and film musings, Mm -hmm. which will be mailed to your door every month. Well, on the topic of great unmade films, uh, speaking of Jesus, Paul Verhoeven has been talking for a long time about making his own Jesus of Nazareth film based on his book, because Paul Verhoeven is a biblical scholar in his spare time. And specifically his belief that Jesus of Nazareth did live, but wasn't a supernatural figure. Yeah. And, you know, I hope Paul uh, Verhoeven gets to make it one day. I would he, love to see that He probably movie. won't. It would be very controversial. At the same time, Paul Verhoeven was supposed to make his crusade film with Arnold Schwarzenegger, which would have been nuts. I would have loved to see that movie another one that i would love to love to have seen was martin scorsese for a long time was going to make a biopic of dean martin yes dino based on the book by nick tasha's and get a load of this cast that he was going to have lined up tom hanks as dean martin john travolta as frank sinatra hugh grant as peter lawford adam sandler as joey bishop and as jerry lewis jim carrey Ugh. What what I would do to see that movie. And, you know, several drafts were written. I think Nicholas Pileggi, the Goodfellas screenwriter, wrote a draft, but it was unfortunately never made. I guess the cast just couldn't be lined up on time and at the right place. Uh, uh, Canon Films is a wasteland of movies that would appear in trade magazines and never got made. Spider-Man Alone was uh, announced to be directed by Toby Hooper, Albert Pyun. And in the 90s, and probably early 2000s, for a long time, James Cameron was going to direct Spider-Man, and that was his passion project and just never got off the ground. Uh, Oh, well, uh, Lizzie Borden's Rialto could have been interesting. Oh, I would have loved Lizzie Borden's Rialto. A film which was, at one point, had Susan Sarandon attached to play this uh, abortionist Mm -hmm. uh, who worked out of a movie theater. I would have loved to see Shane Black and Fred Decker's uh, script that they wrote for John Carpenter about reanimated uh, Vietnam veterans called Shadow Company. Mm-hmm. That would have been amazing. And at the same time, Fred Decker wrote many drafts for director Stephen Miller, most famous for Lake Placid and Friday the 13th Part 2 and 3. He wrote many drafts of Godzilla that was supposed to come out in the 80s. My only you know problem with that is that like if you read any interviews around that time, they're very disrespectful about the idea of Godzilla. I genuinely don't think their Godzilla movie would have been good. No, I but don't it would have been interesting to it see. It would have been a stop motion Godzilla. That's how they were going to do it, mm. uh, which uh, would have been interesting. And I've have seen designs that uh, I think it's William Stout did, who's like a dinosaur drawing mm. expert. And while they did lean more into the T Rex look, it still had that like godzilla aesthetic and they did a really funny thing where they ripped off gorgo where the godzilla you see for half the movie would then die to reveal that it's the child of godzilla and the real godzilla is coming who was massive oh interesting uh you can actually hear fred decker be interviewed about that there's a really good podcast called best movies never made where they do an episode on like famous movies that didn't get off the ground so they've done like um, Yodorowsky's Dune. They often get people that were involved in the picture to talk about what they would have done, which is really fascinating. Uh, honestly, I could talk for hours about Me this too, topic, yeah. but you know, a, a couple more. 
Joe Dante has a couple of good unmade Ugh. projects. First, there's Termite Terrace, which would have been his biopic about the animators who created the Looney Tunes, and it would have been a live-action animation hybrid. And of course, they made Space Jam instead. Yeah. Uh, and he is also trying to make a Roger Corman biopic, The Man with Kaleidoscope Eyes, which I would love to see. Which would be uh, specifically about the time that Corman made The Trip, which is most famously tied to the fact that Corman took LSD and went out to the forest and had this life-changing experience. I mean, I do wonder what the story is there, but... You can tell a lot about Corman within that time. Like, what if you take him from, like, someone who does have ideals about making movies, the Corman who made The Intruder, to the more kind of, like, stripped down, it's all about the dollars, Corman. I mean, he was always there, but there's a part of him that kind of got taken away. And, I mean, to be honest, a movie about Corman making The Intruder would be much more interesting. Yeah. Because, like, that is a fascinating story, and it's a film that killed Corman's um, interest in doing kind of, like, socially relevant uh, motion pictures. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've had this conversation a hundred episodes ago. Ah, we could continue forever, so <laughs> yeah. maybe we should just stop it now. <laughs> yeah, and we should talk about what we're doing next week. Next week, we will be looking at the films of Nora Ephron. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sleepless in Seattle. You've Got Mail. We have a, a serious dearth of romantic comedies on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what better than to go to the queen of romantic comedies, Nora Ephron. I look forward to watching her films because I've actually never seen Sleepless in Seattle or You've Got Mail. Uh, neither have I. <gasps> I know. Two dudes yeah. just talking here, uh, fulfilling their societal uh, expectations, which are bad. But we'll talk to you next week about these motion pictures. And until then, I'm Justin Blue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Well, Justin, you went viral today because uh, you, uh, you you heard through the grapevine mm-hmm. a little birdie planted something in your ear that Fox, now that it has been acquired by Disney, is no longer accepting bookings for rep theaters, at least for the time being. So I should clarify the way that rep theater bookings work. Now, I am not an expert at this, but I've programmed films and spoken to managers about how it actually goes down is that usually you contact the company and you're like, I want to play this movie. Uh, will you send me a DCP or a print, depending on how much money you want to spend for shipping? And uh, the the distributor will give you a, a percentage split, usually with a base dollar amount that you have to pay, or just a base dollar amount for the screening. That's usually how it works. You can't do that with Disney. They just have no interest. They're just like, uh, it's not worth our time. Like, they won't return calls or emails. I started doing a kid series a few months ago, and I was told right from the get-go, just forget Disney, because we're not going to get permission to play them. That's just the way they work. That's the way their DVDs are marketed. You know, they go in the vault. Exclusivity. That's how they've always operated. And when they bought Fox, people were wondering, oh, is that going to happen as well? And then when somebody told me that, you know, they had received an email that this was happening... And I just posted it just casually on Twitter. It just went nuts in a way that I didn't expect, even though that like, well, everybody expected this to happen. Well, I saw a lot of people owning and dragging you uh, Mm -hmm. saying, well, this isn't true. This isn't true. Um, I also saw some people who run rap theaters responding to you and saying, this is absolutely true. You know, I had to cancel my screening of Alien, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. Uh, I think that what's happening is that Fox, like there were layoffs happening and Mm. there, there is no formal policy in place yet. But I don't see any reason to believe that one is going to be instituted. Because at the end of the day, Disney got a bunch of new assets when they purchased Fox. Why would they change their working practices 
because they got new assets. And really, probably what they want is they want a lot of content on their Disney Plus channel. Mm -hmm. And stuff playing in theaters is competition for that. So let's not, you know, why would they give stuff to a rep theater? Now, what I didn't realize when I made this tweet is that I put a photo of like famous Fox films with X's in them and being like, you know, you probably won't be able to watch these movies anymore. Home Alone. Yeah, Alien. Die uh, Die Hard. But honestly, like... There will probably be ways and theaters that will play these movies. You know, when the season comes around, maybe Disney will give permission to play Alien or Die Hard. It is or even lucrative. Yes. It's worth their time to put Die Hard in theaters during Christmas. Mm. But let's say you want to book Sunrise. Or nah, it's not going to happen. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. <laughs> yeah, no. I don't know. Well, they just probably don't have anything in place and they're not interested in that stuff. I mean, even now, like Disney, like if I want to play the Goofy movie, why would Disney be like, no, you're not allowed to play the Goofy movie? Like, how is that any skin off their back but nope they just say we don't give permission to do any of this stuff it does not interest us and i think that'll happen with their silent films as well because maybe it'll be like oh there's offensive content in this stuff so we don't really want it out there well we know that disney is going to be censoring the original dumbo on their streaming service Mm -hmm. do you agree with this um, I think it's a complicated issue. I get that if it's a service where you're showing this stuff to kids, um, you know, may- maybe kids shouldn't have really easy access to, you know, Cole Black and the Seven Dwarves or, you know, the racist parts of Dumbo. But uh, if that's the only version that's going to be available, it will. Yeah, then that's bad. Yeah. I, I mean, Warner Brothers dealt uh, with this on their um, cartoon sets by putting kind of like explanatory cards before the segments. And I think you could watch the uncut or the edited version on the disc. On Disney's DVDs, um, you remember when, you know, 10 or 15 years ago when they put out those big, big like metal tins. Yeah, they, those all had, you know, introductions by Leonard Malton mm. talking about, oh, you know, this, there are stereotypes in this. But those were also marketed a little bit more towards adult collectors. They were marketed 100% to adult collectors because they were incredibly expensive <laughs> it was not for kids yeah no 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 parent would go and buy like oh look these um i'm trying to think of some like very niche disney character collection. Uh, davy crockett <laughs> yeah i just want my kids to watch it nah it's like a nostalgic thing and a historical thing uh so yeah disney it's bad for the world it's bad for society mm-hmm